And I'm delighted to introduce our next speaker, Could, yeah, Dr. Stephen Grinspoon, professor of medicine from the Harvard Medical School, will discuss cardiovascular disease in HIV. Thank you, Elaine, and thanks to the IAS USA for the invitation today to speak. I will be discussing cardiovascular disease in HIV. Uh, these, are my these are my disclosures shown here, and the learning objectives are shown here. We'll describe the degree and potential mechanisms of increased risk of cardiovascular disease in people with HIV, and then I hope you'll be able to describe specific strategies that may be of use to treat this entity among people with HIV disease. Okay, so let's begin. Um, for people with HIV, a life, the life expectancy gap, as you can see, is narrowing uh, with successful antiretroviral therapy, but at the same time, a significant comorbidity gap persists, which you can see here, which is really not closing. And in large part, that comorbidity gap is made up of uh, a number of things, but primarily cardiovascular disease. So cardiovascular disease is an important topic to discuss among people with HIV disease in this current era. Uh, cardiovascular disease uh, is increased in a way that is beyond that can be, that can be uh, predicted by traditional risk factors. So shown here is a figure of a, a number of epidemiological studies, and you notice that every one of them is a bar above the blue line, which is the line of unity. So every one of these studies, which are the major epidemiological studies, suggests increased cardiovascular disease uh, in the HIV-infected uh, people with HIV disease compared to a control population. And uh, in the VAC study, this hazard ratio was increased to about 50%, uh, and this was adjusting for Framingham risk score. So on top of the adjustment for Framingham risk score, there was about a 50% increase. The newest study in 2018 was a really nice global meta-analysis published in circulation by Shah, and that showed uh, similarly almost a two-fold increase in cardiovascular disease among people with HIV. Now, as I mentioned, increased traditional risk factors account for only a portion of the excess cardiovascular disease risk in HIV. So, first of all, I'm not poo-pooing traditional risk factors. We should pay attention to them, and they're critically important. But I just want to make the point that they're not the only thing that's contributing in this population. So, for example, on the left is a study we did a couple years ago now showing an increased relative risk of 75% of cardiovascular disease in HIV versus non-HIV patients. And in fact, there was, there was more hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia among the HIV-infected group. You can see there on the right. But when you control for the troika of hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia, that only accounted for 25% of the excess risk. And that's analogous to um, the VAC study controlling for the Framingham risk and still uh, seeing a significant excess in cardiovascular disease. So it's important to treat these, and I'm gonna talk about a trial for dyslipidemia in a moment, but I just wanna make the point that it's beyond that. Uh, so here's the first question, um, and uh, it goes as follows. Um, and I know you're good at answering these. So which statement is true regarding excess cardiovascular disease in people with HIV? 
A, it often occurs in young people with low to moderate traditional risk and can involve vulnerable plaque features in association with immune markers. B, statins as a class can be used in people with HIV without regard to the metabolism of the specific agent or any underlying glucose dysregulation in the patient. Or C, excess coronary artery disease is characterized by excessive calcified plaque in people with HIV. So I'll give you a little time to answer that question. Excellent. Um, so A is the, in my mind, A is the correct answer, and that's the answer that the majority of people got, which is fantastic. Uh, and I hope they'll be able to clarify that and the other answers as well as I proceed through the talk. Okay, so let's set the stage. Um, immune activation relates to a very novel atherosclerotic phenotype among people with HIV. So recent studies in HIV-positive patients without known cardiovascular disease demonstrate atherosclerotic plaques, but these are typically not calcified versus calcified, i.e. one of the wrong answers, and they're high-risk morphology features, so they're vulnerable. I'll go through all this with you. And they're associated with inflammation and immune activation, tying in the residual immune activation in, that popula in this population to the atherosclerosis, which is a really important point. Now, it's also important to recognize that in the general population, inflamed, non-calcified, and high-risk morphology plaque is more prone to rupture, and that myocardial infarction results from the rupture of vulnerable plaque in 75% of cases, i.e., the people with HIV, often young with vulnerable plaques, have the very type of plaque that is most likely to rupture and cause sudden cardiac death, and Priscilla Shu has written uh, substantially on this topic. So what's a high-risk plaque? So we'll delve a little bit into cardiology, but actually a high-risk plaque is a fatty plaque. A calcified plaque, and that's, that's shown here with all the yellow fat underneath the lumen, okay? And that plaque is more likely to rupture than a calcified plaque. So people say, oh, you have a high calcium score, you're at risk for cardiovascular disease. That's true, but it's not the calcium per se, it's the risk factor high calcium associates with smoking, uh, age, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, it's the non-calcified plaque that's higher risk. And also, eccentric plaque, plaque that doesn't invade into the lumen, actually has a higher risk of being vulnerable because when you slowly invade into the lumen, you develop collateral vessels when you have an eccentric plaque and the big one happens, there's no collateralization, you're not ready for it, okay? So eccentric and fatty equals vulnerable risk, and that's what we're seeing among patients with HIV. In a study that we did to the right, when we looked at at least one low attenuation plaque or at least one positively remodeled plaque, and published this in AIDS a couple years ago, patients with HIV had significantly higher proportions, and Dr. Markella Zani led that study. We've also directly looked at inflammation in HIV patients in the aorta in this case, and we use a technique called uh, 18-FTG positron emission tomography, and you can see here significant increases in HIV compared to Framingham risk-matched control subjects, and actually as much inflammation as in a group of known 
controls with cardiovascular disease. And you can see on the right the degree of inflammation. I think this was the first direct evidence of excessive uh, um, inflammation among the vasculature and HIV-infected patients. Now, if you delve deeper into this, the activated monocytes uh, that the FDG uh, uh, enters are at the present, uh, are, are at the surface of the high-risk plaque, and uh, so that's right at the, the lumen there, and you can see if you did microscopic studies, so that actually shows that these plaques infiltrate in a vulnerable fashion right at the risk, and they're very positively stained for other monocyte-specific markers like CD206 and, and CD163 as well. Now, at CROI this year, uh, newer modalities were presented that may suggest increased risk. One of the most interesting ones um, also came uh, from Mass General with the radiology group there was this notion that the fat around coronary vessels itself may be a marker for increased inflammation. And you can see um, that the, the coronary fat is significantly different for those in higher for any coronary plaque, um, uh, coronary calcium, vulnerable plaque, and Lehman score, which is a measure of clinical disease. And I think stay tuned for this. We're going to learn much more because, if you will, this is a paracrine. These, this fat is it juxtaposed to the actual coronary artery. And there may be uh, factors in the cytokines that are released from this fat which may directly modulate the degree of atherosclerosis. So this is an interesting presentation from Croy this year. So put this together, what I'm really describing is a new paradigm for atherogenesis in HIV in which persistent viral replication, microbial translocation leads to persistent and ongoing T cell activation, monocyte activation, high-risk plaque and inflammation, and I'll go through that further in a few moments. But there are a lot of challenges in preventing and treating uh, coronary heart disease in HIV. First of all, identifying patients with disease, the current risk identification strategies are not adequate. Second, understanding the optimal timing and use of antiretroviral therapy to maximize effects on immune function and minimize metabolic effects. Developing a safe and effective strategy for primary prevention, especially for those not even identified by the current algorithms, but with substantial subclinical disease. And then developing an intervention that addresses both traditional and immune-related risk factors. So this is a lot of things we have to keep in mind as we try and develop this paradigm. So one of the first questions to address is, is antiretroviral therapy itself enough? Um, because there are, there, there are some data to suggest by lowering immune activation, uh, this may be useful. And CD4 itself and is associated with uh, atherosclerosis and cardiovascular events. And we uh, published a study in JAMA Cardiology a couple of years ago now in which we showed that, yes, when you, uh, naive patients take antiretroviral therapy, certainly markers, this has shown uh, activated uh, CD8 cells, there's improvement in that regard, but not to normal, okay? And in fact, we showed that the, the inflammation at the level of the uh, aorta persisted despite this improvement in immune activation, suggesting that possibly you need other strategies beyond antiretroviral. Not that that's bad, and of course it's important, but this residual immune activation may be driving this ongoing persistent inflammation. So there are a number of potential interventions for cardiovascular disease and HIV. I, I put them in two different buckets, kind of the traditional risk modification strategies, in here, I include antihypertensive, anti-diabetic, lipid-lowering, and aspirin. And then the immune 
inflammatory modulator category. And in this bucket, I include antiretroviral therapy, statins, uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, I'll go over that in a moment, and then certain other antagonists like CCR5 or interleukin antagonists. So I don't have time to go through all the studies on traditional risk modification, but I've listed some of the key ones here, and I underlined at the end whether there are any event data, data that actually show if you do strategy A, you save lives and you prevent disease, okay? And as you can see from this slide, to my knowledge, there are no studies that show, that show event data in this regard. There is one study uh, that I happen to be involved with that is ongoing, that is funded by the NIH to try and get at this question, and I will tell you about that study shortly. It's called the Reprieve Study. Um, but these other strategies may work, PCSK9, does improve LDL and inflammation, but again, only tiny studies to date. One of the things that came out at Croy was the fact that the mineralocorticoid system, and I'm an endocrinologist, is activated among people with HIV, particularly those with visceral adipose tissue. And renin-angiotensin-aldosterone blockade, for example, with a plerinone, improves microvascular perfusion, i.e. the perfusion beyond the big vessel. And at the same time, you can see that in the middle, diagram here, um, stress myocardial blood flow uh, uh, is significantly different among a plerinone and placebo and improves with the plerinone. Um, and also we showed that that activation by FDG-PET, that same technique here, significantly improves in a plerinone versus placebo. So stay tuned for this. It might be an interesting new approach beyond statins and other traditional therapies. In any event, we certainly need a large randomized clinical trial to inform clinical practice. HIV patients with low traditional risk scores are at increased risk for disease with subclinical plaque and inflammation. And as I showed you, and I think the studies now suggest, ART alone, great, but it's not enough to prevent cardiovascular disease in people with HIV. So I will spend a little bit of time on statins because they are the likeliest thing you're going to use in the clinic at the moment. So statins are generally safe and well-tolerated in smaller studies, and newer studies do not aggravate glucose. They effectively lower LDL in HIV uh, patients. Uh, they decrease inflammatory pathways, and they may also have effects, interestingly, on non-cardiovascular events. Now, statins address both traditional and immune risk factors. So, Studies have shown that LDL lowering is effective and equal uh, among patients with HIV and non with the use of statins, as they show here in the top line. But interestingly, statins uh, dampen immune activation, and shown here are some effects on soluble CD14, LPPLA2, activated T cells. So what you're getting with this statin, which has been so appealing to NIH, uh, is a two-for-one effect, that you're when I presented that paradigm to you in the beginning that it's beyond traditional. I didn't say it was not traditional. So if you could get a strategy that actually improved traditional effects and the immune effects, that would be a great strategy. And that's, I think, what people are thinking about with statins. Now, the newer statins do not increase glucose or interact with protease inhibitors. And um, metavastatin, as I'll show you, that we're use, using in Reprieve, is metabolized by glucuronidation, and it's minimally metabolized by CYP3A, and there are no known interactions with antiretroviral therapy. 
So that's an, a reasonable one to use. Um, uh, there are no effects on glucose either, and the LDL lowering in the Intrepid trial was quite significant at minus 28%. Uh, now, has anyone ever tried to lower inflammation and improve cardiovascular events with a statin beyond effects on LDL? Yes. There is a very famous uh, study, in fact, Reprieve, which I'm going to tell you about shortly, was modeled after this study, and this is the Jupiter study. And this study looked at whether statins can reduce vascular events in non-HIV patients with low LDL but an increased CRP level, so a marker of inflammation. That's very analogous to the HIV group that I'm going to tell you about for primary prevention, in which LDL is not particularly increased, but CRP, but CRP uh, and other markers of inflammation are significantly increased. And in that study, LDL was reduced by 47 milligrams per deciliter, and that should have resulted in a reduction by 27% of the effects on MACE and, cardi and cardiac events. But in fact, the reduction was 44%, suggesting it was something beyond just lowering LDL in that particular study. So I'm going to ask you another question now. Um, Current ACC AHA guidelines accurately guide prescribing of statin therapy to people with HIV with a vulnerable plaque. Is that true? Is that false? There is a significant percentage of people with HIV with high-risk plaque that would not be recommended for statin therapy? Or is that false? The guidelines would recommend prescribing high, uh, statin therapy uh, almost to all pe people with HIV based on excess of traditional risk factors. So. Let me let you think about that. This is a really important question uh, that may guide uh, treatment in your clinic. Right, so B is correct. There's a significant percentage of people with HIV with high-risk plaque that would not be recommended for statin therapy. So that's great. Thank you. Um, excellent job on that. Um, and we'll go through why the other two answers are not correct shortly. So this is a study that we published also a couple years ago, and we looked at the percentage of patients for whom statins would be recommended. And the light gray bars are the old Framingham criteria, and the new one, the, the 2013 ACC pool cohort equation is in black. So there is a bit of non-specificity here. If you look at the left, even in patients without coronary plaque or coronary plaque with no high-risk lesions, the, these equations, particularly the new one, would sort of recommend treatment among people who would not, do not have plaque. So that's interesting. But I think more ominously to the right, Coronary, those are patients with coronary plaques with at least one high-risk feature. The newer equation does better, but it only recommends statin for 25% for of those with these high-risk plaques. So the new equation misses 75% of people with high-risk plaque in this one particular study. So the point is that there's a disconnect between the observation of this plaque and how we view statins uh, for this population. 
Now, uh, some people have asked me, well, is, is it likely that statins will affect coronary artery plaque? There's a hint that this is true. We published in Lancet HIV a couple years ago that, in fact, there's a significant change in the uh, uh, non-calcified plaque with statins in this, in this small study. There was a nice effect on LDL, the middle box, and there was an effect on this marker of arterial inflammation, LPPLA2. And you can see in the bottom a really nice example of a person who had this juicy, uh, as you remember, uh, 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 plaque that was at the margin of the vessel lumen. Okay, so it was eccentric. And notice it's not white inside. That's because it's non-calcified, okay? This is exactly a high-risk lesion, okay? This is a bad one, and it, it did very well on statins in this particular study. But these are the overall data there. Statins also may dampen immune activation and risk of non-coronary heart disease events. And there are data from a number of studies. These studies suggest a modest improvement in creatinine clearance, possible decreased risk of cancer, and in one study, a retrospective study, uh, reduced mortality among patients with HIV in non-randomized studies. So it's possible, and it's a secondary endpoint of reprieve, that we may show effects on these non-cardiovascular endpoints, which would be really, really interesting, and we're going to analyze our data like START and SMART did in this regard. So that brings me to Reprieve, um, and I thought it would be important to tell you about this. Um, this. Reprieve stands for the Randomized Trial to Prevent Vascular Events in HIV. This is a whopper of a study, and I'm, probably many of you have patients who are in Reprieve in your practice, and thank you very much. Um, we appreciate um, that. There are 110 sites in Reprieve across the globe, including U.S., Canada, Spain, Thailand, Brazil, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Uganda, Botswana, Peru, India, and Haiti. Recruitment closed in 2019. Our funders are on the bottom. If you want to know anything about the trial, please go to our website. Where are we in Reprieve? Proudly, we have recruited over 7,700 participants um, from more than 100 sites in 12 countries. This is an events-driven trial, so it ends when we get to the right number of events, and we have now passed 75% of the necessary events. The mean duration of participation so far is 5.75 years, so we'll probably come in uh, needing about six and a half years or seven years or so, which is just about right for most primary prevention studies. It takes a long time and a lot of people to prevent something. This is completely different than treating something that already exists. So prevention is a hard task to do, but we're trying it in reprieve. So far, we have an excellent retention. Our dropout rate is less than the pre-specified mark of less than five per 100 patient years. These are our sites uh, in reprieve, as you can see. I want to thank Judy. I know Judy Courier is here in the ACTG. ACTG is our partner in this endeavor, uh, and many of our sites across the globe are ACTG sites, and they're really well-performing sites, as, as most of our sites are. You can see a little chart on the upper right. This is the schema. So this is interesting. These are asymptomatic people who are not known to have any clinical cardiovascular disease at low to moderate traditional risk. And we're randomizing them uh, to patavastatin or placebo, and our endpoint is MACE, which is major adverse cardiovascular events, CVD death, MI, unstable angina, stroke, 
arterial revasc or uh, peripheral arterial disease. Embedded in Reprieve is a small, I'm being facetious, mechanistic study of 800 people who are getting CT angiography before and after statin therapy. And here we're trying to understand the mechanisms on atherosclerosis within this large trial. You can't get CTs on 7,700 people. The population is shown here. Everyone is on ART, okay? You have to be on ART to be in this trial. 40 to 75, no history of atherosclerotic disease, and you have to have a low to moderate risk as shown there. And you can't be on statins, of course, to be in this trial because it's a randomized trial. Here are the baseline characteristics, and we're really proud of this. Um, the, uh, there's 31% of the study population are female, and that's really good for most studies of people with HIV. Uh, the LDL is about 108, so it's not particularly high. Um, the age is 50, and the white percentage of white people in the study is only 35%. It's an incredibly diverse study across the globe um, with lots of different races and nationalities. The years since diagnosis is 13 years, so these are long-term HIV patients. CD4 counts well-preserved at 621. Most of the patients have undetectable viral load, and um, their median duration of ARV use is 9.6 years. How has Reprieve informed our knowledge of cardiovascular disease and HIV? Well, actually, we've published like 25 papers so far, all on our baseline data. I'm just going to show you a few snippets of this. So one of the studies we published was looking actually at the baseline disease. So we recruited patients without known cardiovascular disease with low cardiovascular risk. You might presume them not to have any subclinical disease. Not the case, okay? So this 755 participants in the sub-study, sub this was published in GEM Open last year or so, uh, the mean age was 51, and the median ASCBD risk score is five, was 5%. Five it's pretty low. You wouldn't put that kind of person on a statin. Nonetheless, 48% had coronary plaque, including 30% of people with an ASCBD less than 5%. That's really low. 23% had vulnerable plaque features. And interestingly, inflammatory markers like IL-6, oxidized LDL, um, and LPPLA2 were significantly associated with this plaque, independently of the uh, pool cohort equation risk. Recently, Pam Douglas, uh, who's my co-PI on Reprieve and a cardiologist, is working to compare our results to those in other giant cohorts across the globe, okay? SCAPIS is a Swedish cardiopulmonary bioimage study. So it's primarily European, and it's also a primary prevention study, so we can, and the age is quite similar. PROMISE, which she runs, Pam runs as well, that, that, those are people with known cardiovascular disease, chest pain patients, non-HIV. So if you look at this, you can see that across all ages, the pre presence of any form of atherosclerotic disease is A, higher in reprieve than in non-HIV scapus patients, and B, the same effectively as in PROMISE, a known chest pain population, okay? So this is an interesting set of data that was presented this year uh, uh, at the ACC conference. If you look at uh, any plaque present among those with a CAC score, coronary artery score of zero, i.e. non-calcified plaque, 
you're seeing that patients with HIV in reprieve have a significantly higher prevalence of non-calcified plaque, certainly higher than scapus and also higher than promise as well. So it's this kind of data that we can leverage and harness in reprieve to try and better understand the, our patient population. And lastly, <laughs> we've had the opportunity to do whole exome sequencing in the entire pool of 7,700 people, which is a huge endeavor. And this was performed by Dr. Pradeep Natarajan, our colleague. One of the things that we're interested in is uh, CHIP, which is a clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential. These are pre-leukemogenic um, mutations um, that are acquired and are not associated with leukemia, but in fact are interestingly associated with atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. And so we had the opportunity, this is a really hot topic, and we had the opportunity to compare the presence of these mutations in our population uh, to um, a control population. This was presented at CROI this year, and you can see the red line is above the dotted line in confidence intervals. So there's a significantly higher prevalence of CHIP in HIV patients. So that, that has been shown by one or two other groups, and now there's really a consensus emerging on that. Interestingly, one of the factors on the right uh, that was significantly associated um, with CHIP was Nader CD4, more than other things. So an HIV person's Nader CD4, the set point originally of infection, is very, very highly associated with a CHIP. So that's really interesting, and we'll be able to do many studies with that to see if we can understand um, what the specific genetic predisposition and how the immune genetic interaction is that contributes to cardiovascular disease in this population. So I'm right on time. Our conclusions and future directions are as follows. Um, uh, modulation of traditional and non-traditional risks is necessary to prevent cardiovascular disease and HIV. And ART with viral suppression is likely not enough. New therapies tested in large randomized clinical trials are necessary to prevent and treat excess CBD in people with HIV. Reprieve will assess a statin strategy for primary CBD prevention in HIV and inform us of risk factors which predict MACE and plaque progression in this population. I want to thank our uh, site PIs, study teams, trial networks, funders, and most of all, our participants. I want to thank our trial networks, including, as I mentioned, ACTG, NEAT in Europe, Canadian HIV Trial Network, and all our non-ACTG reprieve sites. So thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. That was fantastic. It's <laughs> uh, now open to questions. Um, Everyone should have your questions if they, they want to, should have paper in which to put them. And the mics are open again, so please feel free, get up. Oh dear, I forgot my glasses. Oh, sorry. That can't be me. <laughs> it's, it's not a, I didn't talk about M18. K103 failure with nucleosides, so that must be some, uh, let's see, um, no, this can't, let's see, this must be old ones. 
Well, let me ask you some questions. Who's prescribed a statin for their patients with HIV? Yes? Okay. What risk threshold did you use to prescribe it? Did you use traditional ACC pool cohort equation? Did you say they have HIV, so I better lower the threshold a little bit? What are you guys doing? I'm just curious to know. Combination, so it matters how sick they are, or LDL and the risk score, is that what you're doing? Yeah. So you're looking at, a mul that's excellent. So you're looking at multiple comorbidities at the same time. You're not just looking at one score. I think that's fantastic. Obesity is, I didn't have time to talk about that. It's an emerging problem, particularly with integrase inhibitors, and that certainly can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. They want to give statins to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so do our cardiologists, <laughs> but I'm not sure that's right, you know, and I, I hope Reprieve will be able to answer that question, um, would at least further, like whether there are specific subgroups that may benefit from statin therapy. Maybe the lower risk subgroups you don't need to, but the higher risk subgroups you do. Maybe you need to in people whose CD4 is low. I mean, there's a, I mean, and we'll, we'll be able to develop our own risk prediction algorithm. And the other thing we'll be able to do, which I didn't talk about, is if you think about it, in the placebo arm of our study with 4,000 people, we will be able to tell you whether this pool cohort equation actually accurately predicts risk. Every other study out there that is published on this topic, including some that I'm an author on, are retrospective studies. It's to my knowledge a prospective adjudication has not been performed. So we will be able to tell you not only whether it works, but whether you can use these equations to actually predict, and whether there are specific comorbidities which attenuate that risk or increase it. So um, I don't mean to pick on you, but thank you very much. So we do have a, a question for you here is, how did you choose the statin in reprieve? Yeah, that's a good question, and we went through a lot of angst about that question. Um, I guess, first of all, we wanted to avoid one that interacts with certain ART, um, and then we also wanted to avoid one that no, is known to be associated with diabetes, because the little dark side of statins is that there is a um, kind of a low-level prevalence or incidence of diabetes. The good news is that patavastatin did not show that signal in Intrepid, another large trial. And our DSMB uh, monitors us very carefully every six months, and to date we have not been informed of anything, but that, you know, we'll see what happens at the end of the study. So it was a combination of non-interaction with ART, non-effects on glucose, uh, and that's why we chose it. Um, it's a moderate intensity statin. And the other thing is, um, people will want to know from our trial, are statins tolerable, tolerated? You hear all over the news that, oh, aches and pains, and many people do have those bad things. Um, but I can tell you right now, we've had very, very low incidence of rhabdo or serious stuff, and we'll be able to tell people how well they're tolerated uh, in the long term. So that's a good question. Okay. I have a question for you. Um, I see your entry point is age 40, so I'm assuming there aren't any um, people with perinatal infection. 
yeah, in your study. Point. And I'm, I'm curious about what we know about cardiovascular status for aged up for people with perinatal infection. Yeah, yeah. so um, actually Lindsay Foreman uh, in our group is, is studying that. And um, uh, uh, um, I, I can, I can tell you one aspect of your question which doesn't directly apply to your question but which is fascinating is that babies born to mothers who themselves have HIV but the baby does not have HIV so but is in an intrauterine environment where there is HIV those babies 15 years later are 15 to 20 percent heavier than a very carefully controlled population so in essence there's a very significant interaction uh, among the people who do not get uh, HIV, uh, the babies, um, those that those that do get HIV, I'm not aware of specific studies that have looked at uh, peri perinatal infection versus other uh, modes of uh, infection. And you're right about our age. The the reason we use 40, of course, is because a the pool cohort equation doesn't go lower than 40, and b it's it's. It, it's hard to imagine using a stand to prevent something in someone who's 30. You know, I mean, I think that's, you would need, instead of 7,000 people, you would need 50,000 people sure. to prevent disease in that group. The, the, the incidence is just too low in that group. Doesn't mean it's not a group we shouldn't focus on. But, but it just suggests to me that we need to be thinking seriously about totally. this group of emerging 20 and 30 year olds to absolutely. And, and accelerated yeah, I mean, disease. I wish we could have gotten more money and done a bigger study, but, but yeah. yeah, so we did, we did not focus on that group of people. Fair enough. Great. Are there other questions? Okay. All right. Thank well, you very thank much. you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you.